Almighty God, we open our sails into the winds of your spirit. Take us, dear God, to those places we need to go, where you await us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When I was doing uh, research for a book that I wrote on Khalil Gibran, the early 20th century Lebanese-born poet, mystic, and author of The Prophet, which many of you have heard of, who was from a Christian background, I came upon an article titled The Crucified that he wrote in Arabic on a Good Friday that very much catches the spirit of this gospel reading that was just read. He wrote, Today, man is startled from his deep slumber and stands before the phantom of ages, looking with tearful eyes to witness Jesus the Nazarene nailed on the cross. For centuries, humanity has been worshiping weakness in the person of the Savior. The Nazarene was not weak. He was strong and is strong. But the people refuse to heed the true meaning of his strength. In our reading in Mark's gospel, we're told of Jesus' different kind of way. One might call it the way of powerlessness. Our account finds Jesus and his disciples. They're heading towards Jerusalem. And Jesus chooses to travel anonymously on this Galilean journey. It was to be a period of intense teaching to his disciples, and he's really attempting to teach them one essential thing, that he, the Son of Man, as he refers to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of others, will suffer, be killed, and then rise again. And he's telling them quite literally of his immediate future, that he would be executed. And in doing so, he's instructing them on the true character of his mission, one that entailed suffering and rejection and even death. And we see that they didn't understand, for no such fate could possibly have been part of what they understood to be the game plan, to their understanding what the Messiah would do. If Jesus was indeed the Messiah, they looked for him to be victorious, not defeated. And they were, of course, thinking of a different kind of leader, of a conquering leader, a warrior king that would sweep the Romans, their colonizers, from Galilee and Judea and lead the Jewish people to power. The Jewish people, of course, now were occupied by Rome, and they viewed their greatest days back in the history of King David. And they dreamed of a day when another would arise from David's line, a king that would make them great in power once again. But as time went on, it became clear that this dreamed-of greatness would not happen by natural means. I mean, the facts say it all. Ten tribes are first carried off to Assyria, and they're lost forever. And then the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and carried many of the Jewish people away captive. And then the Persians came as their masters, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans. So another line of thought grew up among the people, and they began to dream of a day when God would dramatically intervene in history and achieve all of this for them. 
And it's against these dreams that we have the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus. They believe that the Messiah, which literally means God's anointed king, would be kind of the superhuman figure dashing into history to remake the world and vindicate the Jewish people. With the result being the total destruction of their enemies and the occupying powers. With them becoming the center of the world again and the rest of the world subject to them. So no matter how favorably disposed they were to Jesus, his ideas of the role of Messiah would have been impossible for them to grasp. And not only had they been brought up with this idea of a Messiah of power, they expected to share in and benefit from the Messiah's triumph, which is why as they walked along single file in a line behind their rabbi Jesus, which is how rabbis and their followers walked then, they'd been arguing up and down the line of which of them would have the highest place in the new kingdom, the new government that Jesus was going to set up. And as Jesus was on his journey to Jerusalem, the capital, this all the more fanned the flames of their messianic hopes in their minds. And they were hoping to be in Jesus' inner cabinet, his ministers of state, their ambassadors. Perhaps Peter would be the vice president, James the secretary of state, traveling the known world at that time, and John his secretary of defense. You get the feeling that they were kind of Sancho Panzas looking to receive their island after serving their Don Quixote. And so in our text, Mark presents us with quite a juxtaposition. On one side, Jesus is speaking about surrendering his life. And on the other side, the disciples are speaking among themselves of fulfilling theirs. And all of this, of course, reaches the ears of Jesus and he dealt with it very seriously. Waiting until the evening in the privacy of a home, he sa says he sat down, calling the twelve near to him. And when a rabbi was to give an important teaching, he always sat down. And he shares with them that true greatness means being the servant of all. And the word he uses here for servant is the ordinary Greek word for waiting tables, which was considered quite a lowly position at that time. In other words, true greatness in God's eyes is not through power or influence or status, but rather through humility and service and even powerlessness. Our gospel account forms a commentary of Jesus' choice of powerlessness as his modus operandi. And, he's not, and as he's not concerned about having whatsoever about having power and influence, he therefore, as you see in the Gospels, he sought out and embraced those without them. His only real power was sacrificial love. And what marked the life of Jesus was not nonviolence, as so often it is said, but in every situation, the choice to not use power. This can be seen when he's tempted three times in the desert to demonstrate his divine power and Three times he refuses. For what the devil figure in that story wanted of Jesus, as the Russian novelist Fodor Dostoevsky brings out so clearly in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, was essentially to involve him in the exigencies of power and thereby neutralizing his message. 
And then Jesus, of course, preaches his Sermon on the Mount, which in all ways contradicts the contemporary understanding of power. And he sometimes even refused to work miracles, miracles that people wanted as proof that he was the Messiah. He disdained all request to give them a sign from heaven. He never performed miracles to gather crowds or to show his power to gain credibility. He only healed as a sign of his love. And we even see him washing, of course, toward the latter part of his life, his disciples' dusty feet, a role that was reserved for the lowliest of servants at that time. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no crown, no throne, no servants, no armed guards. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And while dying from the cross, he refused to work the miracle that they asked him. And they said, if you want us to believe in you, come down from the cross. He didn't come down. The whole time then, the extraordinary choice was, choice was operative not to take the way of power, but rather of sacrificial love. And our gospel account clearly communicates to us this is truly God's way. Jesus says in welcoming a child in our gospel, you not only welcome me, but you welcome the one who sent me. In other words, going the path of powerlessness, of sacrificial love, is truly the way of God. And this was a revolutionary message to a very class-conscious culture of first-century Palestine, where privilege and position were entrenched and his life and message is actually no less revolutionary today. And it relates to the church over the years as well. One of the great ironies of Christian history is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political, military, economic, moral, spiritual power. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, such as what is called the Great Schism of the 11th century or the Great Reformation of the 16th century. It's often due to power being exercised by those who claim to be followers of Christ. Ever since Christianity became legal to practice, with the pronouncement by Emperor Constantine of freedom of worship with the Edict of Milan in A.D. 313, it has been plagued with power. And this right for power or of power for Christians originated actually from Emperor Constantine's conversion, right from the very beginning. As the story goes, he was alarmed by the then Roman Emperor Maxentius's mastery of the magical arts. And so he prayed to the supreme God for help. And the supposed response was a cross in the noonday sky with the words, conquer by this. And that night, he says, Christ appeared to him in a dream. And commanded him to use the sign, the Cairo, the initial Greek letters of, for the name of Christ, as a safeguard in all of his engagements with the enemy. And Constantine placed this sign of cross, sign of Christ, on the shield of all of his soldiers. And then he marched on Rome, confronted Maxentius, and conquered, thereby becoming the first Christian emperor 
of the Roman Empire. Now compare all of that to the life and the teachings of this wandering rabbi Jesus just 300 years, less than 300 years before. Now due to the emperor being Christian and with all the pomp and, pomp and ceremony of his court, wouldn't one need it all the more when we're worshiping the ultimate emperor in our worship? And this is where the ornate dimension in worship originated. With all the gold and all the glitter and all the robes, that bishop's mitre that sometimes bishops wear, the cope, that big robe that they put upon them. This is how the emperor dressed back then. Over the years, the church began to believe that having power provided it's used in the service of God and for fellow human beings was a good thing. And yet with this rationalization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, Africans and Native Americans and many others were enslaved, positions of great influence were cherished, and opulent bishops' palaces were built. And I'm reminded of the words of Mahatma Gandhi. He wrote, Much of what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm speaking of Christianity as it's understood in the West. Jesus possessed a great force, a love force. But Christianity became disfigured when it went to the West. It became the religion of kings. I remember visiting the largest basilica in the world, Notre Dame de la Paix, Our Lady of Peace, in Yamasucro, Côte d'Ivoire, in West Africa built by the wealth of their first president, Humphe Boignier. And up in the largest stained glass window, which is actually of the Last Supper, it's above the altar, there are not 12 disciples, but 13. And the late president Boignier is the 13th disciple, seated right next to Jesus. <laughs> Absurdity. Generally today, it's of course more subtle. But I'm reminded of the late Mother Teresa saying, I do not agree with the big way of doing things. Mother Teresa had no power, but did she ever have authority? The fascinating paradox in all of this is that often those with most authority are not those with the greatest power. Visiting the Dalits, formerly called the untouchables or the uncast in South India, what will forever stand out for me as one of the most profound experiences I've had. I'm reminded of my friend there who is a Dalit, Moses Swamidas, a Christian leader among them. Moses struggled for many years with his self-identity, and he tried many things to give himself status from learning an upper-class accent that would not give away his lowly status as much to obtaining numerous educational degrees, to wearing different clothes, to trying to make friends with those from higher caste. And then one day in a Martoma church in Kerala, South India, as he was praying, he had this mystical experience that literally took his breath away. It was a vision of seeing how God really saw him. And he broke down, sobbing uncontrollably, there in public, around a lot of other people in the congregation but releasing the pent-up emotions of years of suffering. 
but in so doing, being given a vision of whom God truly created him to be. And today, Moses is one of the most beautiful, gentle, self-assured, humble, strong, liberated people you'll ever meet. And when, you have, when you're with him, you have this feeling that he has been given this extraordinarily beautiful glimpse of God. And it's contagious. And he gives himself sacrificially for his people. And that is his now true authority. For the disciples, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But first, they needed to know what kind of Messiah he was. And what lay at the end of the road that he was following? It's the same challenge today for all of us who seek to follow Jesus' way. And I have a number of young people, younger people, confirming their decision to walk in the way of Christ this morning. Our faith, when you think about it, is in fact simply the process of Jesus opening our eyes little by little, increasingly, to God's ways. Letting go, a relinquishing of our own lives to God allows us to see God, who is true power, as never before. For so often, it is in our situations of human weakness and vulnerability that God comes to us with life-giving and healing power. The power of humanity is fundamentally external, but the power of God is internal. It's the power to heal, to give life, and not just to the body, but to heal whatever is broken, to give life to whatever is dead or dying. And of course, the question always is, where and how do we find this power for ourselves? Even this power to express such sacrificial well, we simply need to remember Jesus' own words. Seek, and you will find. Ask, and we will receive. And by God's grace, like the disciples, we will find. In Christ's name, and with his power, we are promised this. Second, is that all right?